You're listening to Connecting the Universe from Mike Ricksecker and ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Welcome, everybody, to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker back at you with another interactive class out of the secret library of the Connected Universe. Tonight, we are going to be talking about researching lost knowledge. This is going to be a uh, an interesting one because I'm bringing up a few old slide presentations that uh, one of them I have not dusted off in years. Uh, but it's uh, it, it's interesting. So it's really a kind of uh, nuts and bolts on uh, on research. But we're going to get into a lot of different things this evening uh, in that regard. So I see several people already down there in the chat. Jill Nuchinsky's in the house. Sarah Youssef and Tom McNicholas there on the uh, on the portal side. Judy Wilson is also down there with us. Great to see everyone this evening. All right, so the, for those that are listening to the podcast version of this later, uh, those that are on uh, you know, any of the syndicated shows like the Onyx Network, KPNL, KGRA, of course, the uh, the regular platforms like Spotify, iHeartRadio, what have you, um, you know, please join us every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time for the live show here. Get all your questions asked. You, uh, if you're just listening in later, you actually don't get to see the the slide presentation or the video clips or all that. So come join us live. Connect to UniversePortal.com. Uh, there is a monthly subscription out there, 30-day free trial, uh, which gets you access to like sneak peek and behind the scenes videos, monthly Q&A, the Mike Morning Mugs video, insider travel blogs, you know, all of that wonderful stuff. Tons and tons, hours and hours worth of video. I challenge you. Come try to finish it all in 30 days. You will not. <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, there is a portion of this that is live out there in YouTube land. So we thank those viewers as well. And by the way, uh, portal members get the app. You'll get all the notifications right to your phone as far as when we go live, when uh, articles and videos and things like that are posted to the portal. Also want to uh, make mention that Bell Mansion, August 12th, we are going to be back because we have this book that is coming out, or I do, uh, Travels Through Time. It's actually out August 1, available for pre-order now, Inside the Fourth Dimension, Time Travel, and Stacked Time Theory. First official book signing is April 12th, Bell Mansion, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then, of course, next year, very pertinent to our discussion this evening, Stargates of Ancient Egypt Tour, April 17th through 28th. 
2024. You can go to my website, MikeRickSecker.com for the details. And also, uh, I did update the portal site as well, ConnectedUniversePortal.com uh, with that information. Those watching uh, YouTube, you can find those links down in the uh, description. Those listening, well, I just told you. <laughs> All right. So let's go ahead and get into this because we do have some ground to cover tonight. I'm going to start with the uh, class question for this evening. And by the way, I throw these up on uh, social media uh, during the day of uh, of the night that we're holding the class. So I put this out there earlier. What type of knowledge do you think the ancients had that has been lost to time? Uh, Sarah Yusuf responded, metaphysical knowledge, definitely. Any type of knowledge that is not affected in the physical world that we can see and affect from. So, uh, yeah, we're going to get into some of those things. Mostly in the uh, latter part of this class. Now, the way this is going to start off, uh, so a lot of people that tune into this on a regular basis are coming more out of like the paranormal investigative field. So, like I said, I have a presentation I'm dusting off from years ago, which was really a nuts and bolts on doing that type of research. Uh, you know, getting into the history of a location, different resources and materials that one would use. And then we're going to branch out from there and get into some of the more esoteric type of research and lost knowledge in ancient Egypt and other locations as well. So let's go ahead and dive into this. Uh, this was a paranormal research resources and techniques uh, presentation I'd done years ago. You can see how old it was. We've got Ghosts of Maryland and Ghosts and Legends of Oklahoma as my two most recent books <laughs> on this. Um, so that would have been books two and three. And yeah, number 13 is getting released on uh, on August 1. So basically, what I did with this presentation when I would give this uh, when I would give this class at different uh, conferences and what have you is I would walk people through uh, you know, resources that are at your disposal. And this is really something that, you know, when you're doing research for a location, no matter what it is, whether it's for a paranormal investigation or whether it's for, you know, other types of research that you, you are doing, you want to try to learn as much about the, uh, the property and the location as, prob as possible. So, you know, this right here, just a basic, um, you know, county assessor property data. So if you're like investigating a home or what have you, uh, then uh, it gives you a lot of information about, you know, when the building was built, of course, tax information, things like that. Um, if there are additions onto the building, some of them will give you, uh, some of them will have like photos. So you might be able to see the house in different stages along the way. So you might be able to see when additions were, uh, were put on there and things of that nature. Uh, a lot of times you can also get uh, information about past residents and you can cross check that sort of stuff with, uh, with other sources, like whether it's, uh, you know, county records or newspaper articles or, or what have you. This was my actual, uh, when I lived in, in Maryland years and years ago, uh, spent 11 years in that particular house. So this is a uh, Oklahoma example, and you can see sort of here on the one side, and this has probably changed over the years too. I'm not sure what's currently on their sites, uh, but you can see here with this particular 
address that uh, there were some some images associated with that and they broke it down by years like uh, 2010 there was a photo and it looks like that's 2004 the number is a little small on my screen here uh, but uh, again giving you information about the uh, the particular property which is really helpful when uh, doing this type of research other information you might be able to get onto a uh, property quick claim deed here this was part of a case that we had done a uh, long long time ago this was good 12 13 years uh, you know basically you know, the records of property changing hands again it can give you uh, different information about you know what's going on you know, with that particular property any of that history is always very very helpful and useful uh, when you're trying to find out things that had uh, happened at, at that place. And again, this, you know, we're, we're doing this in, um, how do I get back to just me? Okay, let's see, remove, there we go. Okay, again, I haven't used the presentations on, on this before, and for whatever reason, it wasn't loaded up. Um, but uh, while I'm presenting this from like a paranormal investigative view, at least this beginning part of it, we're going to get to some of the more uh, esoteric stuff here a little bit later. Um, you know, this is useful for, you know, any property, you know, when you're going to a historic location, you know, you're going to want to know some of these different pieces of information too, because there is, there are things about pretty much any location that, have been lost to time or buried in the records somewhere. And there may be a clue in there somewhere to take you down a rabbit hole to discovering information about a location that you know, people have forgotten about. You know, a lot of times, especially with historic locations, you know, they're telling the same stories over and over and over again. And certain aspects of whatever it is have been lost over the years. So it's, it's helpful to find out as much as you can uh, about all that. All right. So uh, maps, I love maps, especially historic ones. But this is, uh, you know, GIS data of a neighborhood, again, a neighborhood that we investigated years ago that uh, you know, gives you an outline of the, uh, of the land plats, you know, where the uh, property lines actually are. And then when you get into some of the uh, historic ones, then you get to see you know, how those properties changed over the years. And some of them will actually give you owner names and things like this. Uh, this one here, Black Bear Church, that uh, that old abandoned church I have talked about numerous times over the years. This is the location that had the crawler, but, uh, you know, gives you that idea of how the, uh, the property is laid out. And then here's some of the historic ones uh, where you can see, you know, they've marked things on here like, uh, you know, schools and churches and cemeteries. Uh, some of these dots are actually people's homes. And you can see how uh, the different, you know, dots have, have changed from year to year. Uh, so when the ones on the left-hand side there, you can see the cemetery right in the middle. And then across the street is the church on the top one. And then on uh, the bottom one, the church is gone. So basically, this is, again, uh, Black Bear Church, and this is the 
the one was before the church was out of use and the ones after the church was out of use. But you can even see how some of the other uh, buildings around the area have, have disappeared as well. The one on the on the right is is kind of a fun one, really hard to see, but there's actually a uh, an old uh, baseball field that is there. That's actually a map of Baltimore, bird's eye view from the 1870s. And what was really fun about that is a buddy of mine and I, oh my gosh, uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, <laughs> we were really interested in hunting down uh, old historic ballparks and where they had once been. And since we were in Maryland at the time, you know, it seemed natural to, to do Baltimore. And that particular uh, baseball field, Madison Avenue grounds, gone long, long ago. We actually... Uh, went to that neighborhood to scout out where the where the uh, ball field had been. Well, while we we're down there, this is before you know had GPS on your phone and everything. Um, we got lost. We got lost downtown Baltimore, and all we had was a map from 1870 to guide us out, uh, and we were able to do it. So, uh, <laughs> so that was a lot of fun, but. Yeah, maps like that give you a bird's eye view of the city, and these are extremely detailed. Um, you know, those are a lot of a lot of fun to really work with, and uh, and really see how uh, cities have changed over the years, and in some ways not, because again, we were able to use this map from the 1870s to get ourselves out of downtown Baltimore. So uh, yeah, pretty cool indeed. So oh. So the two Kellys are there with Jen. Great to see you. And uh, Tom's dealing with tornadoes. Yeah, we're having thunderstorms here uh, all day. So uh, newspaper articles, you know, again, these are uh, really, really helpful. I love digging into newspaper archives. They can give you some insight into uh, really what's going on at those times. Uh, again, I mentioned earlier using uh, information that you find from uh, from the property records. Take those names, throw them into a newspaper database like newspapers.com or something like that. And you know you're going to, you know, fingers crossed, get some names to pop up and find out, okay, you know, here's a newspaper article of something somebody did. They were living at this property at the time. So it helps to add to the history of a, uh, of a particular location. So like the one in the middle, uh, Guthrie Matron and her children, that's the uh, stone line in. And, um, you know, that had a, I mean, it's fantastic house. They lived there before the few years that it was a mortuary. It was like a mortuary for eight years. And uh, there was an accident with the, with the one little girl. So, um, you know, so that's a, kind of a heart-wrenching uh, photo. The one on the left, man dies in hotel plunge. It's part of the legend and lore of the Skirvin Hotel in uh, Oklahoma City. And I think we get into that a little bit more here. So I'll hold off on that for now. Um, we got stuff on John Wilkes Booth here. Uh, the one at the bottom left, Despondent City Resident, that was on the case that was on The Haunted on Animal Planet years and years ago. 
And that was important information as we tried to uh, narrow down what in the world exactly was happening uh, at that particular house. So uh, any of that information that you can find and dig up is really, really important. So, and yeah, here it is with uh, the one on the right, the uh, Skirvin Hotel. Again, this is a, you know, just going through news websites. You know, a lot of them have, you know, articles for the last um, 30 years. Actually, you know, some of them have an, uh, an even deeper archive where you can get into uh, like the New York Times, um, you know, has one. You can, you know, just punch a search into Google. And if they have an article from the 1960s, you'll get the article title pop up in a little brief preview. And then if you want to, you can subscribe to their archive and get into there. Uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer does the same thing. I was researching uh, my family some years back and, you know, uh, subscribed to their archive and got into there, was finding all kinds of information about uh, like my grandfather, my grandfather's uh, great, great grandfather, who was the humane agent for the city of Cleveland back in the uh, 1890s, you know, stuff like that, which was really, really fascinating. So that's also, uh, you know, stuff that's really helpful. And then uh, on the left, there is uh, my article on the Samuel Mudhouse, which I was just talking about last night with Ursula Bilski. Um, she interviewed me for, uh, I guess that's going to go up tomorrow at some point in time. She was asking me about that. I was like, man, I haven't talked about that house in forever. Um, but there it is. And, uh, you know, other great uh, resources that I think people kind of forget about, uh, libraries, library databases. So, yes, you can go to your library and you can go to the historic sections and you can dig into uh, the inf different information that they have. But a lot of libraries have online resources as well. And so I worked for uh, Howard County Library System in Maryland for, was it seven years, something like that. And they had a, still do, a very extensive uh, library database where you can uh, dive into you know, all kinds of, you know, peer-reviewed journaled articles. I use that actually quite a bit for my book coming up, Travels Through Time. I still have my Howard County Library card. And from here in Ohio, I was able to uh, access all of those uh, databases with all the, um, you know, there's like full books, magazines, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff that's buried within there that I think people kind of forget, you know, are accessible from, I won't say all libraries because so those counties have to, uh, you know, pay for access to those. So it depends on what they're willing to pay for. But uh, you know, if, you're, you know, if your library is a ways away from you or you just don't want to go down there for whatever reason, you can, uh, in many cases, access those things online. In this particular uh, one, uh, you kind of get a glimpse there of a number of the different uh resources that they have, but the one that I have popped up in the middle of the screen, uh, Heritage Quest, that's more for doing genealogy sort of thing. They also have a uh, uh, an ancestry subscription with that, but that's that particular library system. Each one's a little bit different. And then, of course, census records. As much as you can get on uh, people throughout the years, uh, it's always helpful. Census records, you can see here at the very top, <laughs> 1790, George Ricksecker. Yeah, the Rick Secker's been in uh, in America for a long time. We predate the revolution. 
but um, yeah, it's really helpful to uh, to get a glimpse into whether it's family structure, where people lived, uh, movement of people. Uh, that's always always really helpful. I know we're still kind of domestic here. We're still kind of in more recent times. We'll we'll get into some of the other stuff here uh, very soon. So, and then this is uh, ancestry, kind of along the same the same vein, same lines. Uh, you know, getting as much information uh, on a particular family as you can. So we're kind of moving away from the building and now getting specifically into the people. I know I'm kind of whipping through all this. That in the bottom, uh, the bottom right hand corner is actually uh, my family from the uh, 1880s, if you can believe that. Uh, yeah, it, and I stumbled across that photo on Ancestry because somebody from my family had posted that. Everybody with Rick Secker last name, by the way, is related some way, shape, or form because it was Americanized uh, to the current spelling one time uh, in Philadelphia. <laughs> one, one person, so we're all related. So that makes it a little bit easier for me on that line. Uh, some of the others, not so much. But um, but there's a lot of great information there that uh, that... They have uh, digital resources there, but a lot of people, uh, you know, it's collaborative. You know, somebody from, you know, a family line you know, has uploaded information there. And I will say that you'll want to try to cross-reference and check and make sure it's accurate because, you know, anybody can go in there and pretty much create a family tree and say, you know, this is, you know, this is what I believe. This is what I've put together. Um, so you want to cross-check and reference because I have noticed even with some of uh, my family stuff even though it's easier to find because of the last name and we've been around in the country for a long long time um, I have found some inaccuracies so um, yeah always always double check your work right and we learned that in grade school <laughs> um, another great one uh, is findagrave.com and this is again this is when this is find a grave way back in the day. Uh, but that's always been uh, really useful, especially when you're doing uh, some paranormal investigative work. Uh, good, good site uh, to dive into. Okay, old books. I am going to come back around to this, but this is really, really important. Um, you know, we have a lot of great modern texts, but I have found that digging into the uh, old records the because over the years i'll say this over the years as you know there's more information there's more things that happen you know, history keeps building up right um you know you if you were to just keep adding to a history book over the years it would grow thicker 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 right well over time you know People pull information out. They pull information out. They pull information out to you know keep <laughs> to keep something an adequate size to be able to you know sell to the masses. Well, that means information's lost. Like I said, we're going to come back around to this, uh, but that's why I like di diving into the old books because information is still retained. Information has been lost to time. You can find in those old books, um, and that kind of dives into that historic imagery. Uh, this is another great one. If you can find, uh, in this here, Belle Isle uh, was a great example of that. The way that that location has changed 
so many times over the years. This is north side of Oklahoma City, where you know, basically it grew out of a very small power plant and they were running the trolley system out of there. But you see this in our uh, American history in a lot of places where uh, in order to bring in some money for the power plant to keep it running, they would also append onto the property an amusement park. Uh, we see the same thing with uh, like Coney Island and other locations. In fact, they called this Oklahoma's Coney Island. And so they had a small power plant there with the trolleys. They built the amusement park. The amusement park was wonderful for a long time. By the 1920s, it was bought out. The amusement park was taken down. They kept a the little lake there for fishing. And then you had the bigger power plant, which is uh, lower left, that they put in its place. That eventually was torn down, too, in the 1990s. It was abandoned, let's say, 15 years before it uh, was torn down. And unfortunately, people would break into it and roam around. They're exploring. There's a 12-year-old girl who had uh, who died because she fell through the floor uh, in that power plant. They finally eventually tore it down. Now it's a strip mall where it's got like Old Navy and a whole bunch of other stores and things like that in there. So it's really changed a lot in like 100 years. It's supposed to be very haunted as well. But uh, having that imagery really gives you an idea of you know what something may have looked like a long time ago. And you know before photography, of course, we have to rely on things like paintings and illustrations. And when we get into... Uh, some of our, you know, ancient history. Well, there were illustrators that, you know, would travel and record some of these different things, some of these different locations over the millennia. And some of these things, like with Egypt, there are temples that are completely gone today that before they were destroyed, and a lot of times they were destroyed because the locals just repurposed the blocks for making other buildings. But somebody was able to come along and illustrate it beforehand. We see the same thing with like some of the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs where some of the hieroglyphs over time, you know, have just kind of disintegrated or the, you know, worn out and we can't see them anymore. But before that happened, there was an illustrator that had captured that before it disappeared. So one of the great things Napoleon did in uh, in Egypt back when he came through was he brought an art team. He brought scientists, he brought artists with him, and he was recording everything. Say what you want about Napoleon. A lot of what we have today on ancient Egypt actually comes from his expedition there. Even though, you know, he was trying to start wars and things like that uh, while he was there. And I think we're just about done with, uh, you know, uh, websites of locations that give you information. And yeah, that's, that is pretty much the end of that one. But I have a little bit more from a second presentation that I want to share here. And this is from the History and Paranormal Working Relationship presentation, which... Um, it's a little bit more up to date, um, but something that we really have to consider that um, 
you know, mainstream traditional archaeology really doesn't pay a lot of heed to. And that's the history and storytelling, uh, you know, the verbal communication, you know, around basically like around the campfire, you know, the oral traditions. Uh, a lot of times those aren't given enough credit because people will say, well, you know, as you know, as the stories are told over the millennia, the story changes. And they always use the, uh, the example of the, the operator game that you play, you know, as a, as a kid in grade school, you know, start on one side of the classroom with a, with a saying or a little story and then watch it go around the room and see how it changes. Well, yeah, great. When you're a six year old, stuff is going to change. Kids are going to be silly, you know, um, you know, maybe the the sentence is, you know, the uh, you know, the the bird flew into the woods, and you know, kid number three decides to get silly and turn it into the hot dog flew into the woods. I mean, yeah, you're gonna get that with with six, seven, eight year olds. But when we're talking about um, an oral tradition that uh, where a culture is trying to retain their their history and their knowledge your uh your shamans and your wisdom keepers of that culture are very very particular about the information that they pass on so what they are told they memorize they retain and they pass it on to the next generation these are things that they uh hold very very sacred so they're not going to be you know like the goofy six-year-old kid and and change things up um it's been it's been interesting how you know over the years in which you know we've come across some documents we've come across ancient documents that you know had been lost to time and all of a sudden there's a hidden cache found somewhere and some of the stories that are within that were told orally over the years like a lot of the uh a lot of Greek mythology, those were oral traditions for years and years and years and years. When they finally got written down, okay, fine. Now they're kind of set in stone, right? But then when older documents are found and, you know, it predates maybe by a couple of hundred years, you know, the previous, you know, oldest one, and you're discovering, well, it was actually, it stayed really dang accurate. They were, they were very good about trying to maintain accuracy. It's kind of more of a modern concept, thinking that, well, you know, things are going to change. Um, this slide, for whatever reason, when I checked through here earlier, um, for whatever reason, did not want to come up, but it's actually supposed to be this. And it's, it's a quote from the uh, last episode of Game of Thrones. Say what you want about what happened at the end of Game of Thrones. And this is not going to be a spoiler uh, at all. But Tyrion Lannister saying, there's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. And so, you know, that was very important to a lot of these ancient cultures in which they, they wanted to make sure that those that came after them were... Uh, were made aware of whether it was different facts, different life lessons, things like this. They wanted the cultures to uh, to remember and to survive. And so they were very, very good about uh, carrying on 
those traditions. But of course, he would wrap a lot of those things, a lot of those life lessons within a story so that people would remember it. So I mentioned earlier about uh, you know the old books. Uh, and this is a great example that I always love to give. Mount Airy Mansion, Rosaryville Park uh, in Maryland. A lot, a lot of great history uh, with this particular building. The, uh, you know, the brick building extension on the right-hand side is actually the original building. Dates back to the 1600s and it was expanded upon afterward. Uh, a lot of historic people have been to this house. George Washington's stepson married into this particular family. The boxwoods on the property are reportedly a gift from George Washington. And they had, if Jen, if you and the Kellys are still watching, um, the weddings that they threw, it was like a whole week. We're talking about doing a Star Wars themed wedding. Could you imagine doing Star Wars uh, for an entire week? That's essentially what they did here when uh, when Washington steps on married into the family. But a lot of people have reported, of course, a, a ton of paranormal activity here. So as I was doing uh, research for this house, I came across on a website and the, the import on this did not turn out too well. So the text kind of runs off the bottom here. Uh, I came across this kind of one liner on a website somewhere on this particular house. You know, basically when doing your initial research, just you know, sure, run some stuff through Google, see what you get. And then you follow up and hit the more uh, you know, hardcore research and, you know, the peer reviewed stuff and going to places and all of that sort of thing. Um, but you have to initially just see what you, you're going to get. So a uh, little one liner says uh, there was a distraught young woman, heartbroken and mourning about the house, still desiring a forbidden love. She was dis disallowed to have in life. So that's one of the purported ghosts at this house. Okay, great. So doing research, um, finding all kinds of information about the house, about some of the different hauntings there, about, you know, the people that, uh, you know, had lived there, how, you know, this particular ghost is supposed to be this particular person. You look up information on that person and find out, oh my gosh, she died a tragic death in which, you know, she fell down the stairs with an oil lamp and, you know, crazy things like that. Right. Um, and boom, 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 you know, follow up, confirm. Good. It's in the book. Could never find anything on on this girl. Well, one day, came across this particular book, Colonial Mansions of Maryland and Delaware. And I dug into it because it came up when I was um, you know, doing a search on different mansions around Maryland. And this this mansion happened to be in there. And I found within the history of this um, of this mansion, these couple little lines right here that told me this is the story. The tragedy of Ariana Calvert's life is one of the most pathetic stories connected with the historic old mansion. She loved a young man who had re been received at her father's house, but was not looked upon with favor as a stepdaughter's prospective husband. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the story. This is what I've been looking for. And I'm not going to get into all of the details because um, we only have so much time, but basically you know, what happened was, you know, her, her father did not want her to marry this young man. So she ended up, or he ended up sending 
uh, Ariana to go live with her sisters in Annapolis. You know, he just forbade her because she was basically kind of sneaking around seeing him anyway. And so, boom, he sent her away. She became so depressed in Annapolis, she got sick. Her sisters were trying to set her up with other suitors. She did not want anything to do with them at all. And she just got sicker and sicker and sicker to the point where she was just wasting away. Finally, her father passed away. Mother took pity upon her, invited her back to the house, but she was already too far gone and passed away in the house. And so, um, yeah, it, it's a tragic story, but it was through it was through an old book like that that was able to discover a story long forgotten. It was been you know, kind of downtrodden to a little one-liner. Nobody, there was not even a name associated with it. And now her story is able to be told. So that's one of the wonderful things about doing all of this type of work is, yeah, we're discovering lost secrets. We're discovering lost knowledge. But we're actually, or we're also um, recognizing those people who have been lost to time, whose, whose stories have been forgotten and we're able to remember them. And I think that pays him a, a bit more honor. Okay, so kind of finish up here on the uh, and the more modern type of, uh, or I should say research into more of the modern type of history. Now, what do we do when we go to some of these ancient locations? Uh, when see what was the uh so th this photo here you know that that gin supplied me me checking out the uh this is taken in the the king's chamber the great pyramid i'm kind of <laughs> just intently inspecting the room so it's uh you know pretty interesting what uh what we try to discover I mean, it really has to do with connections because it happened so long ago and some of you know so many of the details are scant. It's really really hard to find uh, some of that information. So played this clip last week, and we're gonna get into some other stuff I haven't really touched on before. Uh, King's Chamber. You know, so what do we do for for this? Again, it's trying to make make those connections. We're in the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid. This is a eroded granite box that is extremely interesting. Not sarcophagus. And what is the purpose of this thing? What discovery did you make today? Well, the discovery that we made today, we have the three holes on the back side, evenly spaced apart, but not on the front side. This is completely flat here on the back side, while we have this lip. interesting that this is flat like that and does not have a lift like the other side. It basically suggests that it was no lift that was placed straight down. Something was more slick from the back. Alright, looking down the grand gallery. Just you know Jen is over here. So Jen she is. Um, even she was saying she feels like she's in a factory. And yeah really, you know, I don't know about power plant, which is you know Christopher Dunn's idea, but definitely some sort of factory. To me the Queen's chamber just like epitomizes that. But even in the King's Chamber over here, the rose granite has been turned black. You have 
marks up on the ceiling from you know some sort of chemical reaction that was going on in there that made those marks and it looks like the the box is nicely lined up with that and then of course you have big resonance chambers like this kind of cut off there at the end I don't, i'm not sure why but um so when i go out there to egypt and that's why you know i'm kind of sitting there in that photo intently staring because it's like okay what have we missed first time i was there you saw that clip there you know i noticed the way the box was cut and i talked about that uh a little bit at length last week in, in the way that it was cut and how it's not unlike other sarcophagi around Egypt, which is why we say that that coffer there was not a sarcophagus. Uh, there are other reasons why other people say it was not a sarcophagus, but I'm looking at the stonework of it. And as we're going to the different museums, as we're seeing other sarcophagi, as we're going to uh, like the Valley of the Kings and some of the sarcophagi are still there in, in the tombs. Uh, we went to the Louvre uh, earlier this year before Egypt. We, we stopped in Paris and spent some time there looking at the sarcophagi from Egypt that are in the Louvre and just looking at, you know, the way that those were cut. And what's there in the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid is different. It, it's not like other sarcophagi. So therefore, it's not a sarcophagus. So, okay, let's take a look at the king's chamber here. And something that I was pointing out was another thing that, and that's what I was staring at intently was, okay, here's this box that we have. You know, something happened to it where the corner's blown out. The walls are all blackened. And this is, you know, your Aswan rose granite, which is a pinkish color. But this is all black. You know, something was going on in this room. And then you can kind of see at the top of this photo what I was talking about with those black marks at the top. And I hadn't, I, I don't recall seeing or listening to or reading or whatever, anybody really talking about these marks before. But when you look at those marks, you know, distinctly, you can see these little rectangles protruding out from the walls. This is looking straight up at the ceiling. And for at least half of the wall, you can see it, you know, very, very clearly from the right side into the middle. As you start to go more toward the left side, they're still there, but they're more faint. Well, why might that be? Well, these darker areas here are the ones that are directly above the coffer, the box in the middle of the floor. So whatever was going on in this room, and there are a thousand different ideas as to what was actually happening. Maybe not a thousand, but there's a lot. <laughs> um, was pretty, pretty well focused on that particular part of the room with the coffer, because that's where you're having a lot more of the reaction that's going on. And so when it comes to researching some of the more ancient stuff, it's what you have to really look for are these things that are more out of place. That sure, traditional archaeology coming in there saying, well, you know, there's, there's a box over here. Um, 
sure it was it was a tomb you know what else would the way they use pyramids for oh you know tomb yeah except they never found any bodies there well grave robbers okay um but you know the amount of time it took to build the pyramids to begin with also the they're off on the dates too um this does not make sense for just being a tomb not to mention we see some of the other different uh you know things within the uh within the great pyramid itself like in the queen's chamber where they and we talked about this last week too you know where they try to say this niche here you know it's a place where there was an idol or a statue or something like that yeah but you know then you see the scorch marks and the vitrification of the rock on the back side of it, you know, where something extremely, extremely hot took place that burned the wall and melted it. It's like, yeah, that that wasn't just for <laughs> that wasn't just for a body. And of course, there was no quote unquote queen in the queen's chambers, the name that they gave it, uh, because, well proximity you know the the king's chamber is up above the queen's chamber down below yes you're talking about you know, sexist people who named it um a couple comments here judy wilson that story really shows how research is so important you never know what you're going to find and where it's going to take you yeah it's like a whole rabbit hole that you go down in fact uh in my book uh travels through time that's coming out here i have a chapter where you know start digging in and kind of showing how you know, I was on this one particular topic, started doing some research, and it threw me down this rabbit hole. And I say, welcome. Welcome to the rabbit hole. <laughs> um, so, Sarah, with, with the vitrification, there would have to be a mechanism to work the box. Humans would not be able to withstand the heat. Yeah, exactly, which is why uh, it seems like this was more of a machine. Whether it was a power plant or not, eh. I don't know. I think it was harnessing. I think it was certainly harnessing the energy uh, from the ground to help to power what was going on inside there. What the machine itself was being used for. You know, power plants, are, sure, a great idea. Um, you know, how the entire, you know, what it was powering and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I liken to it as they're trying to, you know, raise the energy of the area so that you have better crop better crops uh better health you know that sort of thing because of the nature of their environment and how difficult it was to to live there um and then sarah is it possible that those chambers could be flooded with water well the nile would have been closer at the time um dunn's idea has different chemicals uh, being used inside. In fact, he he calls the the queen's chamber a, a chemical reaction chamber. So um, I, I definitely recommend looking into his work because he has some wonderful ideas. So um, Jill, uh, were tests done to identify the black marks on the walls and ceiling? Not there. Where chemical analysis was done was on the queen's chamber and. And this is why why Dunn is like, you know, this was a chemical reaction chamber is because um, there's a, a quite a thick layer of salt uh, in the queen's chamber. Why is the queen's chamber coated in salt? So uh, very, very interesting. 
And then uh, DK, DKL, I think the capstone would help answer some questions. If if the capstone, uh, yeah, was ever found, which probably not, um, and there's a lot of speculation as to what the capstone was made out of. Was it the white limestone uh, that the rest of the sides of the pyramid were? You know, was it gold? Uh, some people believe that there was no capstone. So that's an interesting idea in and of itself because you look at some of the old... Um, and the reason for that is you look at some of the old shrines, and I don't have a clip up here, but Elephantine Island, um, you can see it very, very distinctly. And they have other shrines like it in other locations like Edfu and that. But because it's on its side, and you can see the top of it. It's basically um, a pyramid on top of the shrine. And it has no capstone. It is straight across like that. So some people believe that the pyramids actually had no capstones. So... Um, although we see it on the second pyramid where uh, it has more of the traditional you know, peak on it. So it's kind of interesting, the, the different ideas. Um, I do want to get into this clip uh, as we're talking about research and kind of interpreting uh, what has been left to us. Uh, of course, we do the Stargates of Ancient Egypt tour. Coming up again here next April. Link is down in the description for the YouTube viewers. Uh, come join us. So this is Abydos and going through the Stargates there. And I include a newer piece of this for those that have seen the beginning of this before. Uh, there's a newer piece from the most recent tour that we just had to um, talk about some other things here. So yesterday we have seen the world Stargate in Karnak Temple, now we will see the world star date in Abydos Temple. Sab, and Sab means star and the simple gate. And in the same way, star date, star date, star date, star date. So if this was a, just a title, why we don't see it everywhere next to the name of the king? Because this is the star gate. The story says Uzir was dead. When you think about dead person, you think about what kind of uh, shape. A dead person is sleeping on the ground. So his backbone and the spine will be flat above the ground, right? So Uzir is going to rise from the dead land. And this is the annual celebration of the priest. Of course, and the king will be part of it to put the, the pillar upright, and that is, will be in July to be the, something like the Egyptian Christmas. They're gonna say, announce that Uzir is alive. So this is the midway of erecting the pillar or the backbone of Uzir. 23 degrees is what is the axis of our planet. Yes, Earth uh, angle, because Earth is not, the, the North Pole and the South Pole are not vertical. It is 23, I think, 0.5 degrees. So it is the same degree here. And then when we reach this uh, perfect uh, angle, then we will have North and South will be perfectly aligned to, uh, or will be vertical angle, and this will be a beginning of a new cycle of life, a beginning of new civilization beginning of new energies and powers. This is what we call it the Mufkut. 
This is the uh, symbol called Mafka, and this symbol is called Shait. Hajjat Shait, white cake. White cake, and Johnny was talking about white gold. They say that they eat the white gold to have these powers like natives. So it could be white cake. It's only a different way to call it. But I know why it is called Mafkut now. Because most of the white shahid or the white powder was found in Mafkut land, in the turquoise land. Okay, but it is shahid. Okay, there's a lot to, to pull away from, from that. So the middle section, I'll just ask about this because this is actually a, a clip. I'm, I'm going to be in uh, Boulder, Colorado this week and be interviewing with, uh, with Gaia Television again. We're going to be going over Stargates of Ancient Egypt. So I included this clip. And they usually only like it a couple minutes long. This is almost three minutes. And so they're wondering about what's, what's the middle section? Why is this included when you know, we're talking Stargates and you know the, the mono, monotonic white gold and all that? And it's like, well... The thing is, that story of the raising of the Jed Pillar is right there in a room with the three Stargates. So this was something that was very, very important to them. It's kind of one of the points that I, you know, uh, like to make. And one of the points I'm going to make during the interview is that when we look at these uh, locations that have the purported Stargates, they were very, very important locations. Uh, that there, Abydos, Temple of Seti, uh, you know, you have a lot of the, um, you know, the cosmological numbers in there, 72, 10, 7, 3, all of that stuff there. So this is uh, back in that room, has the three stargates. It's back behind the seven chapels. You've got the 10 pillars in there. So, and then you have, of course, the raising of the Jed pillar, which was the, um, like Muhammad was saying, the... Uh, really kind of the new year celebrating the new energies and the Jed pillar supposed to be like the backbone of Egypt. So this was very, very important to them. And so it makes sense that uh, you know, this would be the room with, with stargates is when you have this, uh, this depiction of that celebration. So one of the things when you're researching this type of stuff is of course, understanding what you're actually looking at. And some of that can be very, very challenging. So, I have this book, which I actually picked up in Egypt, the ancient Egyptian language. And basically, it's um, it's a book on the hieroglyphs. Now, I've, uh, well, I got about halfway through taking some uh, courses on hieroglyphs. And uh, it's, it's a lot of time. There's a lot to remember, all that sort of thing. But to understand some of it is really, really helpful. So, and I've learned a lot from Muhammad, too. We're looking at, this is basically the symbol of the Stargate, the right-hand side of it. You have a couple of different things going on here. And this one is read from left to, uh, I'm sorry, from right to left. And how you can tell is the way that the figures are positioned. What You can especially tell with the cartouche on, on the left where you have the, uh, you know, the king that's sitting down and he's looking to the right. So that means you start reading it from the right. Well, the word that we have over there, and you heard Muhammad say Saba, okay? Uh, you have basically the first symbol there is the yes. Now, uh, the ancient Egyptian language, this was what thir was throwing people off for a long time in trying to uh, figure out how to break the code, is 
that they didn't realize that a lot of the language is actually phonetic. Um, you know, there's also what we call determinatives and there's some ideograms, that sort of thing mixed in. And so it's, you know, a challenge to know what is what, but there is a very large portion of it that is actually phonetic. And so you have, um, on the right there, which looks like a hook, it's actually a, a bolt of folded cloth, but that's S. You have the determinative there, which is the star, and then you have the foot there, which is B. And ancient Egyptians didn't have vowels in their writing. So you have the S and the B, and we kind of fill in, you know, the, the vowels there, Saba, but uh, Coptic is something that it really helped us to break that. So uh, a lot of the words that we use are, you know, the, the Coptic words, but Saba basically means stargate. And then you also have uh, the determinative of the gate there. So S, star, determinative, the B, and then the determinative of the gate. So Saba, stargate. The cartouche on the left-hand side is the cartouche of Seti I. So basically, he's the one that had the power to uh, use the stargate there. He's the one that had the authority there to use the stargate. Now, Muhammad was also talking about, at the end there, the uh, what a lot of people over the years have been calling the mufkats, the white powdered gold, uh, the white cakes. And this is... Uh, another depiction of that, of the, uh, of the white cakes. And so uh, it was believed that they ingested this to prepare their bodies for going into the Stargate. And this is, th this is a legitimate uh, element, a legitimate mineral. And kind of uh, almost mistakenly, in modern times, this was rediscovered. And the gentleman that kind of rediscovered that was David Hudson back in the in the 1980s. And really, he had a farm in, um, a very large farm, and had a lot of money, uh, in Arizona. And he was having a lot of problem trying to farm the, la the land there because, you know, you're in Arizona, desert-type area, it's, it's difficult to do. And so to kind of supplement that a bit he was also he was going to old gold and silver mines and he had a chemical process he, he knew a lot about chemistry and so he was trying different chemical things on his land to get it to so that he could be able to plant but he was also using some different chemical compounds to leach uh some of the gold and silver out of these old mines and along the way he found that there was another substance that was coming out with the gold and silver and didn't know for a long time what that was. And I'm not going to go into all the details. It was a very, very long process to get to all of it. And he actually ended up patenting this thing in, uh, in 1989, the whole process to get this, uh, get this white powder gold. And what's interesting about it is that the, the different properties are, are really fascinating. So, uh, so some strange characteristics like when you place some in a pan, like just take a regular steel pan, you place it in the pan, you're going to weigh the thing right on a scale. It ended up weighing less, the pan. The, 
the pan with the powder ended up weighing less than just the pan alone when it was empty. So it had what they were describing as like anti-gravity type properties where um, you know, it was reducing the, the gravity in order to make it appear as if it was, as it weighed less. Um, also, uh, and, and that would happen when you would heat it up to like 70 degrees Fahrenheit, okay? Um, and think about this. Now, we're talking about the ancient Egyptians are going to ingest this. And person's body is 98.6. When it was heated even higher, the thing would actually just disappear. And what they did when it disappeared, it's like in a dish. Heated up, it's in a dish, disappears. What in the world? So they took a spatula and they're, you know, kind of uh, stirring around in there. Where, where is it? Where is it? Nothing. Cooled it back down. The stuff reappeared in the exact same state that it was in before it disappeared. So them stirring with the spatula like had no effect. So it was like it just disappeared. And you know they believed that it actually uh, had moved into another dimension where they had heated it up to that. And then when it cooled, it came back into our dimension. So I have a little clip here from an interview um, with David Hudson from, 20, I think it's 2011, at a uh, conference that he spoke at. My material loses four-ninths of its weight and weighs five-ninths of the beginning weight of the metal. So where did the four-ninths go? It's still there. It's just not in these three dimensions. Now, this is heavy, people. It's very heavy. But it also is telling us what gravity is. And remember, when you control gravity, you control space-time. When you know what gravity is, you're working with space-time. Now, if you could shrink yourself down to the size of an atom and literally walk inside the atom and be in there with the electrons buzzing around outside and the neutron, the proton right here beside you, you'll be in the world of the quanta. And in that world, there is no time as we understand it. It's only when we come up in the macro world in our three-dimensional world out here that time is invented by mankind to describe change. Water runs downstream at miles per hour or feet per second. You get old in years. Everything happens in time. But way down there in the world of the quanta, there is no time. <laughs> Sounds familiar? <laughs> so I need to have a conversation with this guy. Because <laughs> that is um, straight, straight back there on the shelf. Uh, that's exactly stuff that I get into uh, in the book. So I don't get into the uh, monatomic white gold uh, in the book. I'm going to save that for the uh, Stargates book. But yeah, I definitely, I mean, that's, that's all it's about. Time doesn't really exist. It's a human construct. Uh, but basically the idea here is that, uh, you know, they would ingest the, the white powder gold. They're basically changing uh, their molecular structure inside, you know, anti-gravity properties, you know, dimensional properties. Uh, you know, some were saying like Hal Putoff was saying that, you know, you ingest enough of this and you're basically filling your body with light. And so they were doing this and entering into the Stargate chambers and finding themselves elsewhere in the cosmos. So, um, so yeah, Tom here said something about, uh, 
someday someone will find information on stargates and how to activate them and it appears that you know this is one of those keys is this monatomic white gold so all right um yeah and and judy yeah, I've always believed the Egyptians never built any of these pyramids. Whoever did is long gone. Yeah, and that's a, and that's the thing. Like the ancient Egyptians never claimed to have built them. There's no instructions there. You know, they they do say that they saw them, and you know, you you will see the depiction of uh, pyramids within some of their texts. Yeah, because they were there. They came across them. They had already existed, and you do find that uh, mentioned in some of the the ancient texts that they had already. They were already there and they just repurposed them. And so um, topic to get into for another time. So we're going to uh, wrap this up on the public side. I do want to thank everybody for joining us this evening. For those listening to the podcast later, I do again invite you out every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, connecteduniverseportal.com. For those that are members of the portal, I'm going to kick over to uh, the portal side, we'll do our uh, little after show for the rest of you. See you next time, if time really exists. <laughs>